Hi, welcome to Charlotte Mason Volumes podcast. I'm your host, Rachel O'Neill. Over the course of the following episodes, I'm going to be reading from Charlotte Mason's Home Education series, Volume 6, Philosophy of Education. These particular volumes I'm reading came from Anthony Cofield over at livingbookpress.com, where he re-releases living books from around the world, many for the first time since publication. You can purchase your own PDF or hard copy of Mason's volumes by going to the website livingbookpress.com and searching Charlotte Mason. This episode I'm beginning from a short synopsis. A short synopsis of the educational philosophy advanced in this volume. No sooner doth the truth come into the soul's sight, but the soul knows her to be her first and old acquaintance. The consequence of truth is great, therefore the judgment of it must not be negligent. Which coat? 1. Children are born persons. 2. They are not born either good or bad, but with possibilities for good and for evil. 3. The principles of authority on the one hand and of obedience on the other are natural, necessary and fundamental. But 4. These principles are limited by the respect due to the personality of children, which must not be encroached upon whether by the direct use of fear or love, suggestion or influence, or by undue play upon any one natural desire. 5. Therefore, we are limited to three educational instruments, the atmosphere of environment, the discipline of habit, and the presentation of living ideas. The PNEU motto is, education is an atmosphere, a discipline, and a life. 6. When we say that education is an atmosphere, We do not mean that a child should be isolated in what may be called a child environment, especially adapted and prepared, but that we should take into account the educational value of his natural home atmosphere, both as regards persons and things, and should let him live freely among his proper conditions. It stultifies a child to bring down his world to the child's level. 7. By education as a discipline, we mean the discipline of habits, formed definitely and thoughtfully, whether habits of mind or body. Psychologists tell us of the adaptation of brain structures to habitual lines of thought, that is, to our habits. 8. In saying that education is a life, the need of intellectual and moral as well as of physical sustenance is implied. The mind feeds in ideas and therefore children should have a generous curriculum. 9. We hold that the child's mind is no mere sack to hold ideas, but is rather, if the figure may be allowed, a spiritual organism with an appetite for all knowledge. This is its proper diet, with which it is prepared to deal, and which it can digest and assimilate as the body does foodstuffs. 10. Such a doctrine, as example the Harbertarian, that the mind is a receptacle, lays the stress of education, the preparation of knowledge in enticing morsels duly ordered, upon the teacher. Children taught on this principle are in danger of receiving much teaching with little knowledge, and the teacher's axiom is what a children learns matters less than how he learns it. 11. But we, believing that the normal child has powers of mind which fit him to deal with all knowledge proper to him, give him a full and generous curriculum, taking care only that all knowledge offered him is vital, that is, that facts are not presented without their informing ideas. Out of this conception comes our principle that 12. Education is the science of relations. That is, a child has natural relations with a vast number of things and thoughts. So we train him upon physical exercises, nature law, handicrafts, science and art, and upon many living books, 
For we know that our business is not to teach him all about anything, but to help him to make valid as many as may be of those firstborn affinities that fit our new existence to existing things. 13. In devising a syllabus for a normal child of whatever social class, three points must be considered. A. He requires much knowledge, for the mind needs sufficient food as much as does the body. B. The knowledge should be various, for sameness in mental diet does not create appetite, that is curiosity. C. Knowledge should be communicated in well-chosen language, because its attention responds naturally to what is conveyed in literary form. 14. As knowledge is not assimilated until it is reproduced, children should tell back after a single reading or hearing, or should write on some part of what they have heard. 15. A single reading is insisted on, because children have naturally great power of attention, but this force is dissipated by the rereading of passages, and also by questioning, summarising and the like. Acting upon these and some other points in the behaviour of mind, we find that the educability of children is enormously greater than has hitherto been supposed, and is but little dependent on such circumstances as heredity and environment. Nor is the accuracy of this statement limited to, ch to clever children or to children of the educated classes. Thousands of children in elementary schools respond freely to this message method, which is based on the behaviour of mind. 16. There are two guides to moral and intellectual self-management to offer to children, which we may call the way of the will, and the way of the reason. 17. The way of the will. Children should be taught a to distinguish between I want and I will. b that the way to will effectively is to tum our thoughts from that which we desire but do not will. c that the best way to turn our thoughts is to think of or do some quite different thing, inter entertaining or interesting. d that after a little rest in this way the will returns to its work with new vigour. This adjunct of the will is familiar to us as diversion, whose office it is to ease us for a time from will effort, that we may will again with added power. The use of suggestion as an aid to the will is to be deprecated, as tending to stultify and stereotype character. It would seem that spontaneity is a condition of development, and that human nature needs the discipline of failure as well, of us, as, well as of success. 18. The way of reason. We teach children too not to lean too confidently to their own understanding because the function of reason is to give logical demonstration. A. Of mathematical truth. B. Of an initial idea accepted by the will. In the former case, reason is practically an infallible guide, but in the fatter, it is not always a safe one. For whether that idea be right or wrong, reason will confirm it by irrefragable proofs. 19. Therefore, children should be taught, as they become mature enough to understand such teaching, that the chief responsibility which rests on them as persons is the acceptance or rejection of ideas. To help them in this choice, we give them principles of conduct and a wide range of the knowledge fitted to them. These principles should save children from some of the loose thinking and heedless action which cause most of us to live at a lower level than we need. 20. We allow no separation to grow up between the intellectual and spiritual life of children, but teach them that the divine spirit has constant access to their spirits and is their continual helper in all the interests, duties and joys of life.
Thanks for joining me today in reading through Charlotte Mason's works. If you like this episode, please subscribe, leave a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you're listening from as this helps other people also find this podcast. Part 3. Principles hitherto unrecognised or disregarded. I have enumerated some of the points in which our work is exceptional in the hope of convincing the reader that unusual work carried on successfully in hundreds of schoolrooms, home and other, is based on principles hitherto unrecognised. The recognition of these principles should put our national education on an intelligent basis and should make for general stability, joy in living and personal initiative. May I add one or two more arguments in support of my plea? The appeal is not to the clever child only, but to the average and even to the backward child. This scheme is carried out in less time than ordinary schoolwork on the same subjects. There are no revisions, no evening lessons, no cramming or getting up of subjects. Therefore, there is much time, whether for for vocational work or interests or hobbies. Intellectual work is done in hours of morning school and the afternoons are given to field nature studies, drawing, handicrafts, etc. Notwithstanding these limitations, the children produce a surprising amount of good intellectual work. No homework is required. It is not that we of the PNEU are persons of peculiar genius. It is that, like Paley's man who found the watch, we have chanced on a good thing. No gain that our experience must remain unshed. We feel that the country, and indeed the world, should have the benefit of educational discoveries which act powerfully as a moral lever. For we are experiencing anew the joy of the Renaissance, but without its pagan lawlessness. Let me trace, as far as I can recall them, the steps by which I arrived at some of the conclusions upon which we are acting. While still a young woman, I saw a great deal of a family of Anglo-Indian children who had come home to their grandfather's house and were being brought up by an aunt who was my intimate friend. The children were astonishing to me. They were persons of generous impulses and sound judgment, of great intellectual aptitude, of imagination and moral insight. These last two points were, I recollect, illustrated one day by a little maiden of five who came home from from her walk silent and sad. Some letting alone and some wise openings brought about at last between sobs A poor man, no home, nothing to eat, no bed to lie upon. And then the child was relieved by tears. Such incidents are common enough in families, but they were new to me. I was reading a good deal of philosophy and education at the time, for I thought with the enthusiasm of a young teacher that education should regenerate the world. I had an elementary school and a pioneer church high school at this same time, so that I was enabled to study children of large groups. But at school, children are not so self-revealing as at home. I began under the guidance of this Anglo-Indian children to take the measure of a person and soon to to suspect that children are more than we, their elders, except that their ignorance is illimitable. One limitation I did discover in the minds of these little people. My friend insisted that they could not understand English grammar. I maintained that they could and wrote a little grammar, still waiting to be prepared for publication, for the two of seven and eight. But she was right. 
I was allowed to give the lessons myself with what lucidity and freshness I could command. In vain, the nominative case baffled them. Their mind rejected the abstract conception, just as children reject the notion of writing an essay on happiness. But I was beginning to make discoveries, the second being that the mind of a child takes or rejects according to its needs. From this point, it was not difficult to go on to the perception that whether in taking or rejecting, the mind was functioning for its own nourishment, that the mind in fact requires sustenance, as does the body, in order that it increase and be strong, that because the mind is not to be measured or weighed, but is spiritual, so its sustenance must be spiritual too, must in fact be ideas in the platonic sense of images. I soon perceived that children were well equipped to deal with ideas and that explanations, questionings, amplifications are unnecessary and wearisome. Children have a natural appetite for knowledge which is informed with thought. They bring imagination, judgment and the various so-called faculties to bear upon a new idea pretty much as the gastric juices act upon a food ration. This was illuminating but rather startling. The whole intellectual apparatus of the teacher, his power of vivid presentation, apt illustration, able summing up, subtle questioning, all these were hindrances and intervened between children and the right nutriment duly served. This, on the other hand, they received with a sort of avidity and simplicity with which a healthy child eats his dinner. The Scottish school of philosophers came to my aid here with what may be called their doctrine of the desires, which are perceived stimulate the action of mind and so cater for spiritual, not necessarily religious, sustenance as the appetites do that of the body and for the continuance of the race. This was helpful. I inferred that one of these, the desire of knowledge, curiosity, was the chief instrument of education, that this desire might be paralysed or made powerless like an unused limb by encouraging other desires to intervene between a child and the knowledge proper for him, the desire for place, emulation, for prizes, avarice, for power, ambition, for praise, vanity, might each be a stumbling block to him. It seemed to me that we teachers had unconsciously elaborated a system which should secure the discipline of the schools and the eagerness of the scholars by means of marks, prizes and the like, and yet eliminate that knowledge hunger, itself the quite sufficient incentive to education. Then arose the question, cannot people get on with little knowledge? Is it really necessary after all? My child friend supplied the answer. Their insatiable curiosity showed me that the wide world and its history was barely enough to satisfy a child who had not been made apathetic by, spirit, by spiritual malnutrition. What then is knowledge? was the next question that occurred, a question which the intellectual labour of ages has not settled, but perhaps this is enough to go on with, that only becomes knowledge to a person which he has assimilated, which his mind has acted upon. Children's aptitude for knowledge and the eagerness for it made for the conclusion that the field of a child's knowledge may not be artificially restricted, that he has a right to and necessity for as much and as varied knowledge as he is able to receive, and that the limitations in his curriculum should depend only upon the age at which he must leave school. In a word, a common curriculum, up to the age of, say, 14 or 15, appears to be due to all children. We have left behind... The feudal notion that intellect is a class prerogative, that intelligence is a matter of inheritance and environment, 
Inheritance, no doubt, means much, but everyone has a very mixed inheritance. Environment makes for satisfaction or uneasiness. But education is of the spirit and is not to be taken in by the eye or affected by the hand. Mind appeals to mind and thought begets thought, and that is how we become educated. For this reason we owe it to every child to put him in communication with great minds, that he may get at great thoughts. With the minds, that is, of those who have left us great works, and the only vital method of education appears to be that children should read worthy books, many worthy books. It will be said on the one hand that many schools have their own libraries, or the scholars have the free use of a public library, and that children do read, and on the other that the literary language of first-rate books offers an impassable barrier to working men's children. In the first place, we all know that desultory reading is delightful and incidentally profitable. It is not education whose knowledge is not, but it is not education whose concern is knowledge. That is, the mind of the desultory reader only rarely makes the act of appropriation which is necessary before the matter we read becomes personal knowledge. We must read in order to know, or we do not know by reading. As for the question of literary form, many circumstances and considerations which it would take too long to describe brought me to perceive that delight and literary form is native to us all until we are educated out of it. It is difficult to explain how I came to a solution of a puzzling problem, how to secure attention. Much observation of children, various incidents from one's general reading, the recollection of my own childhood, and the consideration of my present habits of mind brought me to the recognition of certain laws of the mind, by working in accordance with which the steady attention of children of any age in any class and society is ensured week in, week out. Attention, not affected by distracting circumstances. It is not a matter of personal magnetism. For hundreds of teachers of very, very in quality, working in home school rooms and in elementary and secondary schools on this method, secure it without effort. Neither does it rest upon the doctrine of interest. No doubt the scholars are interested, sometimes delighted, but they are interested in a great variety of matters and their attention does not flag in the dull parts. It is not easy to sum up in a few short sentences those principles upon which the mind naturally acts and which I have tried to bring to bear upon a school curriculum. The fundamental idea is that children are persons and are therefore moved by the same springs of conduct as their elders. Among these is the desire of knowledge, knowledge hunger being natural to everybody. History, geography, the thoughts of other people, roughly the humanities are proper for us all and are the objects of the natural desire of knowledge. So too is science, for we all live in the world, and art, for we all require beauty, and are eager to know how to discriminate social science, ethics, for we are aware of the need to learn about the conduct of life, and religion, for like those men we heard of at the front, we all want God. In the nature of things, then, the unspoken demand of children is for a wide and very varied curriculum. It is necessary that they should have some knowledge of the wide range of interests proper to them as human beings, and for no reasons of convenience or time limitations may we curtail their proper curriculum.